You're listening to Mysterious Mountains, a production of the West Virginia Humanities Council, where together we explore the imaginary landscape of West Virginia through genre fiction and folklore. Then on the morning of February 13th of 1692, while most of the clan MacDonald was asleep, they started killing them. It was a slaughter. That's West Virginia historian Stan Bumgardner, editor of Golden Seal magazine. And if what he's talking about doesn't sound like West Virginia, that's because it isn't. For reasons revealed in the story, Stan's going to share with us some history about an influential group of early immigrants to Appalachia, the Scots-Irish. But first, the mystery. West Virginia Humanities Council presents... Uncle Abner by Melville Davison Post The Concealed Path Read by Kyle Warmack It was night, and the first snow of October was in the air when my uncle got down from his horse before the door. The great stone house sat on a bench of the mountains. Behind it lay the forest, and below the pasture land of the hills. After the disastrous failure of Prince Charles Edward Stuart to set up his kingdom in Scotland, more than one great Highland family had fled oversea into Virginia, and for a hundred years had maintained its customs. It was at the house of such a family that my uncle stopped. There was the evidence of travel hard and long on my uncle and his horse, and old man bade him enter. "'Who is here?' said my uncle." The servant replied with two foreign words, meaning the Red Eagle in the Gaelic tongue, and he led my uncle through the hall into the dining room. It was a scene laid back a hundred years in sky that he came on. A big woman of middle age dined alone in a long beamed room, lighted with tallow candles. An ancient servant stood behind her chair. Two features of the woman were conspicuous, her bowed nose and her coarse red hair. She got up when she saw my uncle. Abner, she cried. By the blessed God, I'm glad to see you. Come in, come in. My uncle entered, and she put him beyond her at the table. You ought to eat, Abner, for by all the tokens you've travelled. A long way, replied my uncle. And did the ravens of Elijah send you to me, said the woman, for I need you. What need? inquired my uncle, while he attacked the rib of beef and the baked potatoes, for the dinner, although set with some formality, was plain. Why this need, Abner, for a witness whose name will stand against the world? A witness, repeated my uncle. I a witness, continued the woman. The country holds me hard and dour, and given to impose my will. There will be a wedding in my house tonight, and I would have you see it free of pressure. My niece, Margaret MacDonald, has got her senses, finally. My uncle looked down at the cloth. Who is the man? Campbell, she answered, and good man enough for a stupid woman. For a moment my uncle did not move. His hands, his body, the very muscles in his eyelids were for that moment inert as plaster. 
Then he went on with the potato and the rib of beef. Campbell is here, then, he said. He came tonight, replied the woman, and for once the creature has some spirit. He will have the girl tonight or never. He and my husband, Alan Elliot, have driven their cattle out of the glades and on the way to Baltimore. Alan is with the cattle on the Cumberland Road, and Campbell rode hard in here to take the girl or leave her, and whether she goes or stays, he will not return. When the cattle are sold in Baltimore, he will take a ship out of the Chesapeake for Glasgow. She paused and made a derisive gesture. The devil, Abner, or some witch trick, has made a man of Campbell. He used to be irresolute and sullen, but tonight he has the spirit of the men who lifted cattle in the lowlands. He's a Campbell of Glen Lyon on this night. Believe me, Abner, the wavering beastie is now as hard as oak and has the devil's courage. Wherefore is it that a man can change like that? A man may hesitate between two masters, replied my uncle, and be only weak, but when he finally makes his choice, he will get what his master has to give him. The courage of heaven if he go that way, or of hell, madam, if he go that way. Man, man, she laughed. If the one who is not to be named, as we say, put his spirit into Campbell, he did a grand work. It is the wild old cattle lifter of Glen Lyon that he is this night. Do you think, said my uncle, that a MacDonald of Glencoe ought to be mated with a Campbell of Glen Lyon? The woman's face hardened. Did Lord Stair and the Campbells of Glen Lyon massacre the MacDonalds of Glencoe on yesterday at sunrise or two hundred years back? Margaret, the fool, said that before she got my final word. Is it not in an adage, said my uncle, that the Highlander does not change? But the world changes, Abner, replied the woman. Campbell is not Bonnie Charlie. He is at middle age, a dour man and silent, but he will have a sum of money from a half of the cattle and he can take care of this girl. Then she cried out in a sharper voice, And what is here in this mountain for her, will you tell me? We grow poor. The old men are to feed. Alan owes money that his half of the cattle will hardly pay. Even old Macpherson, and she indicated the ancient man behind her chair, has tried to tell her in his wise wife Falderall, I see you in the direst peril that overtakes a lassie and a big-shouldered man to save you. And it was no omen, Abner, but the vision of his common sense. Here are the lean years to dry out the fool's youth, and surely Campbell is big-shouldered enough for any prophecy. And now, Abner, will you stay and be a witness? I will be one witness, replied my uncle slowly, if you will send for my brother Rufus to be another. The woman looked at her guest in wonder. Well, that would be twenty miles through the hills, she said. We could not get Rufus by the morn's morn. No, said Abner, it would be three miles to Maxwell's tavern. Rufus is there tonight. The big-nosed, red-haired woman drummed on the cloth with the tips of her fingers, and no one knew what she was thinking. Her relentless will was the common talk. What she wished, she forced with no concern. But the girl was afraid of Campbell. The man seemed evil to her. It was not evidenced in any act. It was instinct in the girl. She felt the nature of the man like some venomous thing pretending to be gentle until its hour, and this fear, dominant and compelling, gave her courage to resist the woman's will. 
The long suit of Campbell for the girl was known to everybody, and the woman's favor of it, and the girl's resistance. The woman foresaw what folk in the hills would say, and she wished to forestall that gossip by the presence in her house of men whose word could not be gainsaid. If Abner and his brother Rufus were here, no report of pressure on the girl could gain belief. She knew what reports her dominating personality set current. She, and not her husband, was the head of their affairs, and with an iron determination she held to every highland custom, every form, every feudal detail that she could against the detritus of democratic times and ridicule, and the gain upon her house of poverty and lean years. She was alone at that heavy labor. Alan Elliot was a person without force. He was usually on his cattle range in the mountains, with his big partner, Campbell, or in the great drive, as now, to Baltimore. And she had the world to face. That will be to wait, she said. And Campbell is in haste, and the bride is being made ready by the women, and the minister is got to Maxwell's tavern. Then she rose. Well, I will make a bargain with you. I will send for Rufus, but you must gain Campbell over to the waiting. And you must gain him, Abner, by your own devices, for I will not tell him that I have sent out for a witness to the freedom of my niece in this affair. If you can make him wait, the thing shall wait until Rufus is come. But I will turn no hand to help. Is Campbell in the house? said my uncle. Yes, she said. And ready when the minister is come? Is he alone? Alone, she said with a satirical smile as a bridegroom ought to be for his last reflections. Then, replied my uncle, I will strike the bargain. She laughed in a heavy chuckle like a man. Hold him if you can. It will be a pretty undertaking, Abner, and practice for your wits. But by stealth it shall be. I will not have you bind the bridegroom like the strong man in the scriptures. And the chuckle deepened. And that too, I think, might be no easier than the finesse you set at. He is a great man in the body, like yourself. She stood up to go out, but before she went, she said another word. Abner, she said, you will not blame me. And her voice was calm. Somebody must think a little for these pretty fools. They are like the lilies of the field in their lack of wisdom. They will always bloom and there is no winter. Why, man, they have no more brain than a haggis. And what are their little loves against the realities of life, and their tears, Abner, are like the rains in summer, showering from every cloud, and their heads crammed with folderol. A prince will come, and they cannot take a good man for that dream. She paused and added, I will go and send for Rufus, and when you have finished with your dinner, Macpherson will take you into Campbell. The woman was hardly gone before the old man slipped over to Abner's chair. On, he whispered. Hi, you wee drop. No liquor, Macpherson, said my uncle. The old man's bleared eyes blinked like a half-blinded owl's. It would be grand, a wee drop, the night, he said. For joy at the wedding, said my uncle. Na mon, na mon. Then he looked swiftly around. The eagle had beak and talons and what had the dove man. What do you mean, Macpherson? said my uncle. The old creature peered across the table. You had grand shoulders, man, 
he said. My uncle put down his fork. McPherson, he said, what do you beat about? How horned, he replied. We're cool, and I can see. And what do you see? inquired Abner. A vulture flying, said the old man, but his own cold dark beneath him. Again on this night, every motion and every sign of motion disappeared from my uncle's body and his face. He remained for a moment like a figure cut in wood. A vulture, he echoed. I'm on what had the dove to save it? The vulture it may be, said my uncle. The red eagle and the foul vulture, cried the old man. No, mon, it is the bird of death. A bird of death, but not a bird of prey. Then he got up. You may have a familiar spirit, MacPherson, he said coldly, for all I know. Perhaps they live on after the witch of Endor. It is a world of mystery. But I should not come to you to get up, Samuel, and I see now why the Lord stamped out your practice. It was because you misled his people. If there is a vulture in this business, MacPherson, it is no symbol of your bridegroom. And now will you take me into Campbell? The old man flung the door open, and Abner went out into the hall. As he crossed the sill, a girl, listening at the door, fled past him. She had been crouched down against it. She was half-dressed, all in white, as though escaped for a moment out of the hands of tiring women. But she had the chalk face of a ghost, and eyes wide with fear. My uncle went on as though he had passed nothing, and the old Scotchman before him only wagged his head, with the whispered comment, It would be grand a wee drop tonight. They came into a big room of the house with candles on a table and a fire of chestnut logs. A man walking about stopped on the hearth. He was a huge figure of a man in middle life. A fierce light leapt up in his face when he saw my uncle. Abner, he cried, why does the devil bring you here? It would be strange, Campbell, replied my uncle, if the devil were against you. The devil has been much maligned. He is very nearly equal, the scriptures tell us, to the king of kings. He is no fool to mislead his people and to trap his servants. I find him always zealous in their interests, Campbell, fertile in devices and holding hard with every trick to save them. I do not admire the devil, Mr. Campbell, but I do not find his vice to be a lack of interest in his own. Then, cried Campbell, it is clear that I am not one of his own. For if the devil were on my side, Abner, he would have turned you away from this door tonight. Why, no, replied my uncle with a reflective air. That does not follow. I do not grant the devil a supreme control. There is one above him, and if he cannot always manage as his people wish, they should not for that reason condemn him with a treasonable intent. The man turned with a decisive gesture. Abner, he said, let me understand this thing. Do you come here upon some idle gossip to interfere with me in this marriage, or by chance? Neither the one nor the other, replied my uncle. I went into the mountains to buy the cattle you and Elliot ranged there. I found you gone already with the herd toward Maryland, and so as I returned I rode in here to Elliot's house to rest and to feed my horse. Elliot's with the drove, said Campbell. No, replied my uncle. Elliot is not with the drove. I overtook it on the Cheat River. The driver said you hired them this morning and rode away. The man shifted his feet and looked down at my uncle. 
It is late in the season, he said. One must go ahead to arrange for a field and for some shocks of the fodder. Elliot is ahead. He is not on the road ahead, returned Abner. Arnold and his drovers came that way from Maryland, and they had not seen him. He did not go the road, said Campbell. He took a path through the mountains. My uncle remained silent for some moments. Campbell, said my uncle, the scriptures tell us that there is a path which the vulture's eye hath not seen. Did Eliot take that path? The man changed his posture. Now, Abner, he said, I cannot answer a fool thing like that. Well, Campbell, replied my uncle, I can answer it for you. Eliot did not take that path. The man took out a big silver watch and opened the case with his thumbnail. The woman ought to be ready, he said. My uncle looked up at him. Campbell, he said, put off this marriage. The man turned about. Why should I put it off, he said. Well, for one reason, Campbell, replied my uncle, the omens are not propitious. I do not believe in signs, said the man. The scriptures are full of signs, returned Abner. There was the sign to Joshua, and the sign to Ahaz, and there is the sign to you. The man turned with an oath. What a cursed thing do you hint about, Abner? Campbell, replied my uncle, I accept the word. Accursed is the word. Say the thing out plain. What omen? What sign? Why, this sign, replied Abner. Macpherson, who was born with a cowl, has seen a vulture flying. Oh, damn man, cried Campbell. Do you hang on such a piece of foolery? Macpherson sees his visions in a tin cup. Raw corn liquor would set flying beasts of Patmos. Do you tell me, Abner, that you believe what Macpherson sees? I believe in what I see myself, replied my uncle. And what have you seen? I have seen the vulture, replied my uncle. And I was born clean and have no taste for liquor. Abner, said Campbell, you move about in the dark, and I have no time to grope after you. That woman should be ready. But are you ready? said my uncle. Man, man, cried Campbell, would you be forever in a fog? Well, travel on to Satan in it. I am ready, and here are the women. But it was not the bride. It was Macpherson to inquire if the bride should come. My uncle got up then. Campbell, he said in his deep, level voice, if the bride is ready, you are not. The man was at the limit of forbearance. The devil take you, he cried. If you mean anything, say what it is. Campbell, replied my uncle, it is the custom to inquire if any man knows a reason why a marriage should not go on. Shall I stand up before the company and give the reason while the marriage waits, or shall I give it to you here while the marriage waits? The man divined something behind my uncle's menace. Bid them wait, he said to Macpherson. Then he closed the door and turned back on my uncle, his shoulders thrown forward, his fingers clenched, his words prefaced by an oath. Now, sir, and the oath returned, what is it? My uncle got up, took something from his pocket, and put it down on the table. It was a piece of lint twisted together, as though one had rolled it firmly between the palms of one's hands. Campbell, he said, 
As I rode the trail on your cattle range in the mountains this morning, a bit of white thing caught my eye. I got down and picked up this fragment of lint on the hard ground. It puzzled me. How came it thus rolled? I began to search the ground, riding slowly in an ever-widening circle. Presently I found a second bit, and then a third, rolled hard together like the first. Then I observed a significant thing. These bits were in line, and leading from your trail down the slope of the cattle range to the border of the forest. I went back to the trail, and there on the baked earth, in line with these bits of lint, I found a spot where a bucket of water had been poured out. Campbell was standing beyond him, staring at the bit of lint. He looked up without disturbing the crouch of his shoulders. Go on, he said. It occurred to me, continued my uncle, that perhaps these bits of lint might be found above the trail, as I had found them below it, and so I rode straight on up the hill to a rail fence. I found no fragment of twisted stuff, but I found another thing, Campbell. I found the weeds trampled on the other side of the fence. I got down and looked closely. On the upper surface of a flat rail, immediately before the trampled weeds, there was an impression as though a square bar of iron had been laid across it. My uncle stopped, and Campbell said, Go on. Abner remained a moment, his eyes on the man. Then he continued. The impression was in a direct line toward the point on the trail where the water had been poured out. I was puzzled. I got into the saddle and rode back across the trail and down the line of the fragments of lint. At the edge of the forest I found where a log heap had been burned. I got down again and walked back along the line of the twisted lint. I looked closely, and I saw that the fragments of dried grass and now and then a ragweed had been pressed down, as though by something moving down the hillside from the trail to the burned log heap. Now, Campbell, he said, what happened on that hillside? Campbell stood up and looked my uncle in the face. What do you think happened? he said. I think, replied Abner, that someone sat in the weeds behind the fence with a half-stocked square-barreled rifle laid on the flat rail, and from that ambush shot something passing on the trail, and then dragged it down the hillside to the log heap. I think that poured out water was to wash away the blood where the thing fell. I do not know where the bits of lint came from, but I think they were rolled there under the weight of the heavy body. Do I think correctly, eh, Campbell? You do, said the man. My uncle was astonished, for Campbell faced him, his aspect grim, determined, like one who at any hazard will have the whole of a menace out. Abner, he said, you have trailed this thing with some theory behind it. In plain words, what is that theory? My uncle was amazed. Campbell, he replied, since you wish the thing said plain, I will not obscure it. Two men own a great herd of cattle between them. The herd is to be driven over the mountains to Baltimore and sold. If one of the partners is shot out of his saddle and the crime concealed, may not the other partner sell the entire drove for his own and put the whole sum in his pocket? And if this surviving partner, Campbell, were a man taken with the devil's resolution, I think he might try to make one great stroke of this business. I think he might hire men to drive his cattle, giving out that his partner had gone on ahead, and then turn back for the woman he wanted, take her to Baltimore, put her on the ship, sell the cattle, and with the woman and money sail out of the Chesapeake for the Scotch highlands he came from. Who could say what became of the missing partner, or that he did not receive his half of the money and meet robbery and murder on his way home? My uncle stopped, and Campbell broke out into a great ironical laugh. 
Now let this thing be a lesson to you, Abner. Your little deductions are correct, but your great conclusion is folly. We had a wild heifer that would not drive, so we butchered the beast. I had great trouble to shoot her, but I finally managed it from behind the fence. But the bits of lint, said my uncle, and the washed spot. Abner, cried the man, do you handle cattle for a lifetime and do not know how blood disturbs them? We did not want them in commotion, so we drenched the place where the heifer fell. Your bits of lint. I will discover the mystery there. To keep the blood off, we put an old quilt under the yearling and dragged her down the hill on that. The bits of lint were from the quilt and rolled thus under the weight of the heifer. Then he added, That was weeks ago. But there has been no rain for a month, and these signs of crime, Abner, were providentially preserved against your coming. And the log heap? said my uncle, like one who would have the whole of an explanation. Why was it burned? Now, Abner, continued the man, after your keen deductions, would you ask me a thing like that? To get rid of the offal from the butchered beast. We would not wash out the blood stains and leave that to set our cattle mad. His laugh changed to a note of victory. And now, Abner, he cried, will you stay and see me married, who have come hoping to see me hanged? My uncle had moved over to the window. While Campbell spoke, he seemed to listen, not so much to the man as to sounds outside. Now far off on a covered wooden bridge of the road there was the faint sound of horses, and with a grim smile Abner turned about. I will stay, he said, and see which it is. It was the very strangest wedding. The big determined woman like a fate, the tattered servants with candles in their hands, the minister and the bride covered and hidden in her veil like a wooden figure counterfeiting life. The thing began. There was an atmosphere of silence. My uncle went over to the window. The snow on the road deadened the sounds of the advancing horses until the iron shoes rang on the stones before the door. Then suddenly, as though he waited for the sound, he cried out with a great voice against the marriage. The big-nosed, red-haired woman turned on him. Why do you object, who have no concern in this thing? I object, said Abner, because Campbell has sent Elliot on the wrong path. The wrong path, cried the woman. Aye, said Abner, on the wrong path. There is a path which the vulture's eye hath not seen, Job tells us. But the path Campbell sent Elliot on, the vulture did see. He advanced with great strides into the room. Campbell, he cried, before I left your accursed pasture, I saw a buzzard descend into the forest beyond your log heap. I went in and there, shot through the heart, was the naked body of Alan Elliot. Your log-heap, Campbell, was to burn the quilt and the dead man's clothes. You trusted to the vultures for the rest, and the vultures, Campbell, overreached you. My uncle's voice rose and deepened. I sent word to my brother Rufus to raise a posse comitatus and bring it to Maxwell's tavern. Then I rode in here to rest and to feed my horse. I found you, Campbell, on the second line of your hell-planned venture. I got Mrs. Elliot to send for Rufus to be a witness with me to your accursed marriage, and I undertook to delay it until he came. He raised his great arm, the clenched bronze fingers big like the coupling pins of a cart. I would have stopped it with my own hand, he said, but I wanted the men of the hills to hang you, and they are here. There was a great sound of tramping feet in the hall outside, and while the men entered, big, grim, determined men, Abner called out their names. Arnold, Randolph, Stuart, Elnathan Stone, and my brother Rufus.
The concealed path is a bit of a wild ride, seeming to range from a mythical Highland-inspired backwoods West Virginia to the long cattle drive to Baltimore. Out of all the Uncle Abner mysteries, it ranks with a mere handful that feel more fantastical than real. But that doesn't mean it's all made up. Joining me to discuss matters both Scottish and Appalachian is a West Virginia historian who needs little introduction to most lovers of Mountain State antiquity. He's an author, musician, folklorist, and public historian who has even worked on a number of Humanities Council programs through the years, contributing many West Virginia encyclopedia articles and writing the script for the Council's Hatfields and McCoys traveling exhibit, American Blood Feud. For the rest, I'll let Stan Baumgartner himself tell it. I am the editor of Golden Seal Magazine, which has been West Virginia's magazine of traditional life, history, and culture uh, since 1975. It's a quarterly magazine, and we've done uh, nearly 200 issues since we started. I've been with Golden Seal since 2015. Before that, I've been a West Virginia historian I guess we're about 30 years in different places. I worked in at Harpers Ferry National Historical Park, and I worked in the West Virginia State Archives. Then I was creative director for the West Virginia State Museum renovation, which opened in 2009. And I have a lot of other things that I would say my, my resume is very long, but not always very impressive. <laughs> I didn't realize you were so heavily involved with the state museum renovation. Whenever I get people out here to West Virginia to visit, I always try to take people through there because I tell them, listen, this is this is not your average stuff-in-glass cases museum. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's what we were shooting for with the museum was to make it fun. And I worked on it for eight and a half years. And there were a lot, I mean, there were so many people, too many people to credit who made that museum what it is. I kind of pictured myself at times like a film director. I just want to make sure, okay, we stay on track. I did a lot of the writing. You have to decide what's in, what's out, what stories you tell, what stories you don't. I, for better or worse, made a lot of those decisions. What's your favorite section of the museum? Do you have a favorite section of the museum that you're very, very pleased with the way it turned out? That's a good question. Rather than one section of it, we wanted people to come out of the museum whether they realized it or not, and whether they really took time to think about it, having a better idea of what it meant to be a West Virginian. And there's not a, uh, just like Appalachia or anything else, there's not one West Virginia or one West Virginian. We decided the way to do that was by telling the stories of everyday West Virginians throughout history. And people that most visitors, even if they're familiar with West Virginia, probably wouldn't have heard of. And some people specifically tied to an artifact that really, unless you were on the museum project, you wouldn't know who this person is. And we did a little bit of research. We contacted families. We got family stories. And we tried to tell as many of those, the everyday stories. And that's what Golden Seal Magazine does is like it doesn't tell you who we are as West Virginians. It just tells a lot of different stories about West Virginians. I think that's probably my proudest thing is I think that does come through. It may take a few times going through, and there's so much to see in there. Somebody figured this out, and it's obviously a somewhat made-up number because everybody reads and walks at their own paces. But they said if you read every word and listened to everything in there at a normal pace, it would take like 26 hours to go through the museum. 
and we knew that a lot of the people who come to the museum are repeat visitors, whether they're children, students who come through, or just people who like history. We wanted there always to be something new for them to see. With limited budgets for museums, we knew there, were, there couldn't be a lot of changing exhibits. So we decided, okay, we'll put a lot of stories in there, a lot of artifacts, and people can go through and look at the parts they're interested in. You feel that in the design. One of the things I appreciated when I bring visitors there is I know we can spend four hours in there if I've got the right kind of visitor. We won't run out of things to see, but you have this main narrative track. You can stay on the main path, and then there are all these rooms off to either side that explore individual topics in greater detail. And if you are just not into a particular period or not into exploring a certain kind of thing, then you can skip it and you can keep going, or if it's just a question of time. So there have been times when I've just kind of blazed somebody through, all we've got is an hour, we just go through on that main track. And there's other times when I've spent two or three hours in there popping in and showing them my favorite things in some of the side rooms and stuff like that. I'm glad you mentioned that, and I'm glad you said one hour because we had many target audiences. But first and foremost would be school groups. So we talk to the tour guides, we talk to the front desk people, and when student groups come in, they want to tour the Capitol and the governor's mansion and everything else. We knew they had about an hour to go through the state museum. So that was one of the things we worked with the designers originally and said, okay, we need a one-hour experience, but we want something more in-depth for people who really want to come in and learn about prehistory or statehood. The Western Humanities Council actually played a big role in that, and the director, uh, now retired Ken Sullivan, he and I worked together on that show pass script quite a bit. And as two historians, it was a struggle constantly to cut words. Yeah, it's much harder to do a shorter shorter thing than a longer thing. A longer thing you can take all the time you want. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great introduction, what you said about trying to tell all of these individual West Virginian stories, that there's something for, shall we say, every kind of West Virginian in that museum. And that's a little bit of what we have to talk about today with regard to this particular Melville Davison Post story and a very specific Scottish setting. Scottish immigrants living in this grand secluded manor house somewhere in the hills of West Virginia. You have this noble Highland family that's fallen on hard times, does this very interesting portrait bear much resemblance to the real picture of Scots-Irish immigration to West Virginia in the 1800s? Not particularly. Uh, <laughs> it, and and, and um, it's not a criticism of Post for doing it. I mean, he used artistic license to tell a story. And it is very reminiscent of life in the Scottish Highlands, though. He kind of transplanted a Scottish Highland story that would have fit very well in that setting into West Virginia. He just moved it across the ocean. But people in the Scottish Highlands once had great wealth, and through series of wars, inner wars among the clans and, and also battles and fights against England over the years, by the 1600s and 1700s, it was kind of what you see in the Post story, which is to a great extent, impoverished people, but the heads of these clans still lived in these Gothic castles. What Post is portraying would be very familiar to people who lived in the Scottish Highlands at that time, but it's not really reflective of anything I'm familiar with in West Virginia. 
you know, he mentions the massacre of Glencoe in the story. He actually spent his honeymoon in Glencoe, and Post is big on stealing things from his own life to put in his mysteries. So I'm suspecting that's where he lifted the atmosphere and became acquainted with this particular story. But if we did have Scottish immigrants here to West Virginia and Scots-Irish, and what is a picture of that immigration more like? The early settlement in the Appalachians in general was what we call Scots-Irish, which isn't really a real term. I mean, I don't believe they used that in the British Isles. It really didn't come into use a lot in the United States until Irish immigrants started coming in greater numbers in the mid-1800s. The Scots-Irish, to distinguish themselves from these new Irish who were coming in 1800, this is where you started to see historians and the people themselves saying, well, we're not Irish, we're Scotch-Irish, or now we use Scots-Irish. To cut to the chase, it was essentially of a religion, is that the Scottish people um, were Presbyterians who were at odds with the Church of England, so they were pushed out of their homelands and they went into the Ulster region of Ireland and lived there for a hundred years or more, about five generations. To a point, their cultures blended together, and that's why we use the term Scots-Irish, but these were people who had come from Scotland, made a stop in Ireland for a hundred plus years, and then came to America, and they didn't have money. They were working, most of them, as indentured servants for seven years, to pay their passage across the ocean. Then when they settled, they settled in the, the cheap lands that where nobody else was settling, and that was the mountains of Appalachia quite often. So you're saying a lot of them would have worked off their indentured servitude probably along the East Coast, and then when they finally got their freedom, they moved westward across the Appalachian chain and, and settled out here where land was cheap. Yes, to work off the indentured servitude of seven years, they would work around Philadelphia, around Boston, or in the south near Charleston, South Carolina, or um, Wilmington. A large number of them ended up in the North Carolina, South Carolina part of Appalachia because they came in through Charleston, South Carolina, or through Wilmington, one of those ports. Do we have any idea why these Scottish transplants into Ulster, Ireland, why they decided to leave Ireland to come to the United States? There were always religious issues. I think that's the main one. And they had heard also that America was a land of opportunity, but also it was kind of wide open and they could hold their religious beliefs openly. Certainly with the, those Scots-Irish, that was a major driving force. Did they consider themselves a group apart from the Scottish and the Irish, or did they define themselves as a sort of Scots-Irish hybrid as they came over? They tended, and I say that with hesitation because there's always many exceptions, but there was a pattern of them moving as groups, as clans, which a clan was family, but it was also akin to a political jurisdiction in the feudal system. So when they came to America, many of them came as clans and groups. They came with their traditions, and they came with their family bonds, and some of them also came with some clan rivalries. If the majority of them coming over are not these aristocratic gentlemen ranchers, <laughs> then what kinds of businesses and livelihoods were common among Scots-Irish immigrants once they came over? 
Scots Irish immigrants were overwhelmingly farmers. They lived in rugged terrain, not unlike the Appalachians and West Virginia. It's hard to grow things in rugged terrain, and it's also hard to grow things in a very bitterly cold climate. But what they did a lot of was raise livestock. They did bring that tradition with them. Now, in some places of Appalachia, especially as you go further south, you have a different climate than you had in Scotland. So they become planters raising crops more than they did in Scotland. But livestock was a a big part of their world. And they really, the money they had, the actual money for the Scottish when they were still in Scotland was kind of paid to the clan for protection, basically. If you lived in Scotland, they had their own little armies. Some of them weren't little, that they would provide protection. But you had to, if you lived on clan land, you had to pay up. It sounds like something out of organized crime from the 30s or something. So they worked in a barter system. They traded quite a bit. They made the tools that they needed, just like we associate with West Virginia. There's so many similarities there. And they would go out of their way, even when money was involved, to try to work out barter deals because it's one way to avoid taxes. And so that was more of the economic system in Scotland at that time. And any money was put toward guns and the necessities of life that you couldn't raise or trade for. Did they bring any particular traditions or practices that are handed down through the generations that we see today? The Scots-Irish, and really the British Isles in general, sometimes I think we leave the English out of this conversation a little more than we should, but they handed down many of the traditions that we associate very closely with being Appalachian traditions. And the best example is in mountain music. When you hear old fiddle tunes or get to the Vandalia gathering or things like that where you have people playing old-time music, as we call it now, most of that traces very closely to the British Isles and particularly the Scots-Irish. And that's why it's sometimes just like you're tracing your, your family history into a family tree. You can trace back fiddle tunes, somehow going back at least to the 1500s. But because the Scots and Irish lived in this Ulster region for over 100 years, It's hard to distinguish sometimes what was an Irish part of a tune to a Scottish part to an English part, but that's the roots of early country music. I'm not sure today's popular country music, but certainly bluegrass music grew out of that old mountain music. So a lot of the music traditions that we still have today, we can directly trace to the Scots-Irish and the British Isles. Insofar as there is an an Appalachian identity, which obviously there are many, many ways to be Appalachian. There's a huge amount of diversity in the region. Scots-Irish immigration in general is given a lot of airtime as perhaps the most influential immigrant group. Is this an accurate representation to sort of typify the region as being largely Scots-Irish in terms of their roots? There's a lot of diversity in Appalachia today, and there has been for really 150 years or so. But those early settlers in the 1700s particularly, they were primarily Scots-Irish, and then the other group would be Germans, who often get left out of this. And um, the Germans, too, kind of moved in their own way. They had their own kind of clannish ways of moving to areas, and they moved as a whole group 
for many of the same reasons. Religious persecution was one of them. All of Europe was in war, it seems like, for hundreds of years and hundreds of years beyond that. And then after the Reformation, then there were these wars over Protestantism versus Catholicism. And some of the Germans who were, we see in West Virginia, a lot of Lutherans and Mennonites come to this area so they can practice their religion. So I think that's probably from those early settlers, that's the main group that often gets left out when we portray it as just Scots-Irish, because there were many, many Germans. And I can say personally, I'm mostly of German ancestry, and they settled in Pendleton County, what's now West Virginia, in the 1740s which is extremely early for any settlement in West Virginia. When does this portrait start to change? When does the Scots-Irish predomination of immigration start to fade and new groups start to come in? In terms of Appalachia, the first major wave of a non-Scots-Irish or German group would be the Irish who came in about the time of the Great Famine. You start seeing the 1840s and the 1850s. And again, many of them go to the cities, but some of them make their way to really the only city we had in what's now West Virginia at the time, which was Wheeling. Wheeling developed a major Irish population, and then there were pockets of Irish who would settle together in the mountains where we get the diversity in Appalachia, you know, and I hesitate to call it settlement. There were certainly African slaves and slaves of African descent throughout Appalachia, less in the mountains and where the small farms were, but slavery existed in Appalachia. The main thing is it couldn't thrive. You see it more in like Tidewater, Virginia, for instance, where you have massive plantations. The mountains didn't lend themselves to having a lot of money and being able to even afford slaves. After the Civil War, when you have the Industrial Revolution finally kind of comes to West Virginia uh, with the railroads and the coal industry and the steel and all these other industries that boomed in the late 1800s and early 1900s, that's when you see former slaves coming to this area of their own choice, the children of slaves coming to build the railroads and former slaves building the railroads, the children of slaves working in the coal mines, And then you also have a lot of immigration from Europe, particularly Eastern Europe, many Italians, overwhelmingly the biggest group of immigrants to come to West Virginia were the Irish, but also you had Poles and Czechs and Russians, and you had a new influx of English immigrants, particularly Welsh, people from Wales who they had worked in coal mines in Wales, so they came to West Virginia because that's where coal mines were. I'm going to have to ask because I think it's too interesting of a story, and I think you know something about it, about the massacre of Glencoe. Because it is mentioned directly in the story, I think it's worth kind of sharing with the audience what that's all about. The massacre of Glencoe occurred on February 13, 1692. It was in the Scottish Highlands. Not to go down the rabbit hole of all the English and Scott history that goes back of centuries of fighting And they were fighting over many things, but religion was a principal thing. The Scottish Highlanders, and particularly the clan MacDonald, many of them were Catholic, and they had pledged their allegiance to James II of England, 
for anybody who knows the stories about Henry VIII, there was a major break with the Vatican in the days of Henry VIII, and he formed his own church, the Church of England, which essentially was formed originally so Henry VIII could divorce several of his many wives, the ones he didn't have beheaded. So the Church of England became the official church. When James II of Scotland from the House of Stuart ascends to the throne, he's, he's Catholic. He doesn't say it outwardly, but he's raising his children Catholic. He practices Catholicism, and this isn't a very well-hidden secret. That was a problem for the English, and Parliament basically replaced him with a guy named William of Orange. As a result of that, you have an uprising in the Scottish Highlands, one of many that are generally labeled Jacobite, which comes from the Latin name for James, to return James to the throne, a Catholic king to the throne. One of the major ones of this was in 1689. The Scottish Highlanders in this Jacobite uprising of 1689, they fought well, but it was easily put down. William of Orange wanted to punish them, but he also had France on his hands. And when James II had been replaced, he went to France, which was a very Catholic country. There was always this dream and hope among the Scottish Highlanders that James would return from France with the French army. And William of Orange, who is now king, decides he needs to deal with France. France is his greater threat. He wanted to keep the Scottish Highlanders at bay so he wasn't fighting a two-front war here. A deal was struck. How much he was involved in what happens at Glencoe is still a question, but he was certainly in the loop. There was a plan put in place where basically they would buy off the Scottish Highlanders, the clans, literally bribe them to keep the peace. They wouldn't be punished for the uprising of a couple of years before if they would pledge allegiance to the crown and agree not to rise up. They would just take their money and go home, and they desperately needed the money. The head of Clan MacDonald was a man named Alistair MacDonald. He was better known as McKeon. He delayed because he wanted to hear the word from James in France, whether he should take this deal. But it was probably also to show his disapproval with the deal he was about to accept. He waited really until the deadline. And then he went to the wrong sheriff who took his oath and then took that piece of paper from that sheriff and went to the place where he was supposed to go. And they accepted it. But because it had come in after the December 31st deadline by this point, King William and the Scots who were allied with King William, and there were many of them, particularly in the lowlands, they decided retribution was in order, that even though the MacDonalds had taken the deal because they had waited until after the deadline of December 31st, Clan MacDonald needed to be punished, in part because they had a reputation that wasn't sterling, but more importantly because Clan Campbell had been long rivals of the MacDonalds. When I say long rivals, so long that nobody knows what it started over. And the Campbells, they had put their lot with King William. They came up with a plan. 
and there's somewhere between 120 to 200 troops, and you read different accounts. They were redcoats. They had the British regular uniform, but they couldn't really attack them directly because of where Glencoe and just how it's situated geographically. It was very hard to do a straight-on attack. What these troops did is they went to Glencoe, the homeland of Clan MacDonald, and they asked for billet or housing. Now, it may seem unusual that you've got two feuding clans and the MacDonalds decide to put up these troops for nearly two weeks. But the alternative was paying taxes. If you would put up the troops in your houses, especially in the middle of winter, you could get out of paying some taxes. And again, they were very short on money. They were Scottish troops, but they were under King William. And they lived in the houses of Clan MacDonald for 12 days. They ate their food. They slept in their houses. Then on the morning of February 13th of 1692, while most of the Clan MacDonald was asleep, they started killing them. It was a slaughter. They shot many people in the back, and they did kill McKeon, Alistair MacDonald, the troops had blocked the one easy getaway. Some members of the clan MacDonald, and there were hundreds, fled into the hills, into the mountains in February in Scotland. And it was, it, was, it was almost like blizzard conditions on the day of the massacre. You see different numbers, somewhere between 25 to 38 were killed in the massacre, but untold numbers, I mean, you read anywhere from 40 up into the hundreds, died of frostbite from going into the mountains and being forced out of their homes. It was a brutal event. It became kind of a rallying cry and a thing that bound people of the clan MacDonald together. And even other Scott, you, you saw this as an attack, first of all, by England against the Scottish Highlanders. So, like, remember the Alamo, essentially remember Glencoe. That's why that massacre was seen as so brutal, because there have been a lot of events like this in the history of the British Isles. It's not exceptional as an event, except for the fact of how well planned it was, that this wasn't just, you know, somebody lost their head in the fog of war. This is a well-planned out and executed massacre. Many people who are descended from the Scots Highlands look to that event as the most offensive thing that could have happened in their entire history with England. Back in Post's world here that he's constructed, this is kind of a big deal that the matriarch of the MacDonald clan is saying to, I believe she says it to Abner, it's not like it happened yesterday, basically. It's, it's happened 200 years ago. It's no big deal. You're saying that the cultural memory and legacy of this event has extended far past the Jacobite rebellions. Yes, it's, it's, it's speculation because we can't get in Post's mind, but the Hatfield-McCoy feud was recent history at the time he wrote this. It was only 30 years in the past or so. You know, I think when the Hatfields and McCoys did a formal truce, some type of shaking hands down on the Tug River, 20 or 30 years ago, so that only took them 100 years to get over it. What she's saying in the uh, story is that it's 200 years now. There's no direct associations with Clan MacDonald or Clan Campbell or the massacre. That's the closest comparison I could say, is where even in the height of the Hatfield-McCoy feud, 
you had the romance between Johns Hatfield and Rosanna McCoy. And in many instances, Hatfields were marrying McCoys, McCoys were marrying Hatfields. As a matter of fact, if memory serves, isn't Devil Ants Hatfield still alive? Because he writes this story in the 1910s. Devil Ants doesn't die until, what, the early 1920s? 1921, I believe. So it's it's current history. It, by, by the time he writes this story, the Hatfields and McCoys have become kind of a... A sideshow. I mean, Devil Ants Hatfield is making money off his fame at this point. He's become kind of a celebrity. And the Hatfield-McCoy story was known across the country. Devil Ants Hatfield, they made a movie about it in 1915. And Devil Ants plays himself in the movie. It's a long-lost movie. There's some stills from it, which is what we associate with some of the photos of Devil Ants Hatfield. But this would have been fresh in post-mine. There's a lot of parallels I see between the Hatfields and McCoys and the McDonald's and the Campbells in his story. I think it would be quite a coincidence that he wasn't thinking about the Hatfields and McCoys. So even if it doesn't historically make sense for these Scottish Highlanders to be here, there's a certain poetic reality to it, you're saying. <laughs> I would give anybody artistic license. I even give Post more artistic license here because to me, he was, without saying it, he was trying to make it more romantic and go back hundreds of years and tied to hundreds of years of feuding. But in some ways, he could have changed the names to Hatfield and McCoy. It would have made just as much sense. Probably more people would have known what he was referring to because I don't know how much of the massacre of Glencoe was taught in uh, Harrison County schools. We may never know if the Hatfields and McCoys inspired Post to explore his connection with Glencoe through the feuding Campbells and MacDonalds. What is certain is that the Scots-Irish are one part of the rich tapestry of Appalachian and West Virginian identity. In the very same decades during which sensationalized media coverage of rare episodes like the Hatfield-McCoy feud were beginning to perpetuate stereotypes of Appalachians as backwards, uneducated, vindictive hillfolk, the region was seeing one of its greatest periods of diversity. In 1907, just a few years before Melville Davison Post began publishing the Uncle Abner stories, a mine explosion in Monongah, Marion County, less than 20 miles away from Post's stomping grounds near Clarksburg, killed over 350 miners. Among the names of the dead were Poles, Greeks, Italians, Hungarians, African Americans, Lithuanians, Irish, Scottish, and more. Like Stan pointed out, there isn't just one West Virginian, and as the saying goes, it takes a village. To paint a picture of the mountain state in all its tragedy and triumph, we all have to be included in the portrait. A big thank you to Stan Bumgardner for joining us. For more episodes of Mysterious Mountains, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit wvhumanities.org for links to our podcast page and more content. You can also follow the West Virginia Humanities Council on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The West Virginia Humanities Council is the state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The council is an independent, nonpartisan nonprofit supported by the NEH, the state of West Virginia, contributions from the private sector, and people like you. 
Its statewide mission is to support a vigorous educational program in the humanities across West Virginia. This audio production of Mysterious Mountains is copyright 2021 by the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme song is Appalachian Impressions Movement 2, A Train Through Snowy Thurmond by Matthew Jackford, used with permission.